transmission. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report. We are now in overtime, the second half of the program where we are online only on streaming on uh, Facebook and YouTube, the... Uh, second half of the show will be up as its own podcast on Thursday at 5 a.m. And so not being on the radio, we are free from the shackles of the FCC. It's always great to uh, always great to have liberty. Um, And like I said, we got some good stuff for you. Uh, We're going to be talking to Pride at Work. Um, We're going to be answering some viewer questions and uh, taking a look at some other IATSE stories. So uh, let's go ahead and um, let's go ahead and start with that first one that you've got there. Sure. Yeah. Let me uh, let me get situated here because uh, we did have quite a few IATSE stories. Actually, there's been a lot going on in the news with IATSE. Um, so I wanted to highlight some of those stories, of course, and and let folks know what's going on. And the first one is actually involving uh, the video game industry. And we've talked a little bit on the show about, you know, efforts to unionize in the video game industry. And, um, you know, IATSE is right there and is fighting to take part in that drive. And so they have launched gameworkers.org, which is the first, and they're launching the first ever video game industry study. So, Again, coming from uh, the International IOTSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, uh, they have announced the initialization of the 2023 GameWorkers.org Rates and Conditions Survey. And they did a very similar survey with the video effects folks, the VFX workers. uh, That was really good and very, very uh, helpful. And so this is a key step in IATSE's quest to ensure representation for the dynamic and vibrant workers of the video game industry. Video games are a new frontier in entertainment, five times larger than the motion picture industry and growing, said Chrissy Felmuth, IATSE's video games organizer. Yet the digital artisans, code wizards, and puzzle alchemists who create these immersive worlds often find themselves navigating the industry without the same rights and protections associated with union representation that workers in other sectors of entertainment already have. This survey is a crucial step towards leveling up the working conditions for game workers. While with the union backing this inaugural study, IATSE looks to spawn a record level of participation, providing a clear reflection of the industry landscape. The strength of this study lies in its numbers. The more game workers who participate, the more accurately we can map the terrain and shape a strategy to secure improved conditions, said IATSE International President Matthew Loeb. All who are involved in the video game industry, regardless of IATSE membership, are invited to participate. Survey submissions will be anonymized and collated into aggregated results, 
Submissions will be open until July 31st, 2023, with results set to be unlocked shortly thereafter. You can go to gameworkers.org slash 2023 survey. Just go to gameworkers.org. If you know anyone in the video game industry, please let them know about this survey. Again, it doesn't matter if they already belong to IATSE or not. IATSE is doing this survey to get a, a clear picture of the video game industry and the working conditions that folks are facing. Uh, so regardless of your affiliation, if you are at all related to the video game industry, please do take this survey. So really appreciate IATSE, uh, the leadership there, uh, to do this because you have to know the conditions uh, to address the conditions, right? So I think that's important. Yeah, and the, you know, the video game industry, I didn't realize that it was larger than the movie industry at this point. And right. the, you know, the probably the most well-known, even though it's not that well-known, but but the one that I the issue that I've seen covered the most in the video game industry is crunch. Uh and that is the time like kind of right before the video game goes live where the company has compulsory overtime during the development of the game. I mean, this is such a widespread issue and it's so well known that it's got its own Wikipedia page, right? <laughs> and yeah. so, um, you know, so this is really an issue and, uh, you know, the Wikipedia page has sources showing that, you know, 65 to 80 hours a week for extended periods of time without any overtime because these people are typically hired on as salary employees, so they don't have to pay for hours worked over 40, um, which is absurd. But, you know, I'm familiar with people in other industries that are that are quote unquote salary. Uh, and so they don't get paid for hours worked over 40. And so, you know, the the need for unionization is real in this industry. And, um, yeah, definitely take uh, take the survey. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so I think that we have a caller on the line and we'll be able to we should be able to talk to them before uh, Pride at Work, unless they're already on the line. Uh, let me check here. I think we do have both a caller and I think we have our guest on the okay. line. So let's go ahead and let, let's go ahead and, and talk to Pride at Work since we have them. Uh, we have them slated. And yeah. caller, we will be uh, we'll pick you up as soon as we wrap up this interview uh, should be uh, 30 minutes or so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, it just yeah worked out that way. So uh, I will take it away with our interview with. Pride at work. Really looking forward to this. Uh, let me get my notes out. Sorry about that, y'all. Um, so let me adjust our camera. I'm just having some issues today, y'all. I, I don't know what's going on. Just, you know, be patient with me. I don't know why. Today is just, you know, the day. And trying some new stuff today. Trying so. some new stuff today. Yeah, I had multiple guests in the studio kind of threw us off, but that's okay. It's, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be good. Yep. Uh, we've got Brittany Anderson on the line from Pride at Work. Brittany, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So uh, you are here representing Pride at Work, and I want to talk about Pride at Work and, and the work that y'all do and what y'all are all about. Uh, but before we get into that, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself. Tell us about who you are and your journey in the labor movement. Absolutely. Um, so thanks again for having me. So excited to be here talking to folks in Alabama and down in the South. 
Um, my name is Brittany Anderson. I have the pleasure of serving as national co-president of Pride at Work, which is the AFL-CIO constituency group for LGBTQ workers. Um, and yeah, and I'm, I'm just a proud union queer. Um, I grew up in rural Minnesota and was raised by a single mom. She always worked a full-time and a part-time job, and we still really struggled to get by. Um, and I myself worked at like Kmart, Shopco, a cabinet factory, and I saw most of my community struggling as well. Um, just like generations of families in my community breaking their bodies and maybe making it up to 12 or $14 an hour after a decade or two at the same place. Right. Um, and still just having very little financial security to show for all of their hard work, right? The American dream just isn't real for most folks, no matter how hard they work. Um, and so even though I love my hometown, I just didn't see a future for myself there in terms of job opportunities and because I knew deep down that I'm queer. Um, and it's a very conservative area. I graduated from high school back in 2008. Um, so I did the cliche queer kid thing and took off to college in New York City. Um, I was lucky enough to be there when Occupy Wall Street started in 2011. Wow. At Occupy, I met union organizers. At that time, I didn't know what a union was, um, but they took me under their wing and helped me understand that being poor is not something to be ashamed of um, and that it's not your fault. Um, that actually Wall Street and the ultra wealthy have rigged the economy against working people. Um, and so I went on, I fell in love with the labor movement. Um, it changed everything about how I saw the world, my life, my family. Um, and I went on to work for Local 338 of the UFCW and RWDSU, the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union, which I know has a big presence down there. And then the International of the RWDSU. Um, I moved back to Minnesota in 2017 to work as field director for the Southeast Minnesota Area Labor Council, and then for the Machinist Union. Um, and I was elected as co-president of Pride at Work in 2022. We just had uh, some workers on earlier in the show who have a union election on Wednesday um, with the Machinist Union here in Huntsville. Yeah, yeah, good, good machinist representation today on the show on the Valley. Yeah, Labor love That's it. Awesome, it's awesome. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that that story and and a little bit about your journey there. Uh, you know, that's really cool that you've been able to uh, connect with different unions that way. And um, you know, I'm I'm about the same age as you. I I'm one year older than you, I think. So I I kind of developed along the same line. And Occupy Wall Street was very big in my consciousness. However, from very much afar, uh, you know, Occupy didn't make it too far in Alabama, but um, it, it, it was inspiring nonetheless. And so, yeah, that really resonates with me. So talk to me about Pride at Work. What, what do y'all do and, and why do y'all exist? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Pride at Work, we're the constituency group for the AFL-CIO. The AFL-CIO is the umbrella for most labor unions in the United States. Um, and so we're the constituency group for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer workers. Um, so we we build queer and trans union power. Um, we have 29 chapters across the country and several more in early stages of organizing, um, including in some of your neighboring states there in the South. And we would love to see an Alabama chapter. 
Um, so our chapters have a lot of autonomy uh, to work on the issues that are most important to them. So it looks different across the country in a lot of cases. Um, one thing we're doing as a whole organization right now is our chapters have adopted over 75 union Starbucks locations where we provide solidarity to those local Starbucks workers, United Union siblings, um, whenever they need us. Like right now, they're going on a nationwide strike, um, which is such an exciting and powerful moment. Um, in Washington state, one of our chapters started the local Pride Festival because there was just nothing being done for Pride. We have other ones who work on local and state legislation. So sometimes it's passing like a municipal ordinance to make sure that trans and non-binary folks um, have access to safe and comfortable bathrooms um, at the local library, for instance. Um, we also provide a lot of training and guidance to unions on how to write and enforce contract language that protects queer and trans union members and to make sure that the, uh, the union health care benefits um, cover gender affirming health care. Um, you can find lots of good information on that on our website, including model contract language. Um, but we're always happy to answer questions. We field a ton of informal phone calls from cis straight union leaders and reps who really want to do right by their LGBTQ union siblings, but just like aren't sure how to best handle a situation or what the right words are to use. So we, we love being a resource. Um, we also have a phenomenal LGBTQ plus 101 training that's geared toward, you know, union leaders, reps, stewards, anyone who wants to learn how to stand in solidarity with queer and trans coworkers. Um, we do cover topics, you know, like pronouns and bathroom access, but it's also about grounding ourselves in union values and recognizing how homophobia and transphobia in the workplace undermine everybody's collective bargaining power. Um, right. You don't have to like us or agree with everything, but it's actually in your own self-interest to make sure that all of your coworkers have respect, safety, and healthcare that covers all their needs. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, for me, I think the answer to bigotry is solidarity, that, you know, an injury to one is an injury to all. And, you know, something I've said on the show before is like, you don't have to understand everything about other folks. You don't have to know everything, uh, you know, about gender theory or queer theory. Like, you don't have to be an expert in all that to know everybody should be treated respectfully and be treated with dignity. And everyone deserves, you know, equity in the workplace uh, and to be paid fairly and to be treated well in the workplace, to have health care. Right. We, we can agree on those common values, regardless of like what prior knowledge you have coming into to these conversations. And I think it's really cool that that y'all serve as that resource for folks, because, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a straight white guy like me, there's a lot that you just maybe don't know, uh, not because you don't want to know. But it's just it's not my experience. And so we, we only can go off our experiences, but that's where having relationships with diverse folks can really be so huge and we can learn from one another. So I think that's just it's fantastic that y'all are that resource for folks um, providing, you know, sample contract language and helping union leaders like wrap their heads around these issues that maybe aren't necessarily always on the front burner for them. Right. You know, a lot of union leaders are, are maybe experts in pensions, but maybe not how transphobia is affecting folks through legislation. So I think that's that's great that y'all are there. And 
something you talked about was Starbucks. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about Starbucks because y'all have been, you know, pretty involved. You mentioned the kind of like the adopt a store, adopt a, a union uh, that y'all are doing, which I love that idea. Uh, but y'all, y'all have been involved with Starbucks a little bit and, and Starbucks is, is relevant, right? Because of the makeup of the workers at Starbucks, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So I used to work at Starbucks. Um, and so I know firsthand that an overwhelming amount of Starbucks workers are LGBTQ. Um, it's, it's, you know, we sort of joke that we have a couple of token straight co-workers at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think Starbucks Workers United um, did a survey and found out that of the folks who've been leading the organizing in their stores, I think it was 63% of them are queer or trans. Mm. So, I mean, that's huge given that, you know, we estimate about one to 2% of the population um, as a whole is trans and about 10% um, identify as queer. So 63% of the leaders organizing Starbucks are LGBTQ, um, which that's is just huge. phenomenal. And, yeah. yeah, that's, and it's not a coincidence by any means. Um, you know, I think when you're queer or trans, you sort of have to start questioning um, authority a little more from very early on. Um, just to survive, you have to sort of learn how to organize, how to stand in solidarity with other people. Um, so I think when we get to an age where we start working and when we see anybody being treated unfairly, we're more sensitive to that because we've experienced it. Um, and so, yeah, all of that makes us like really natural union organizers. Um, I think we've always been at the forefront. We just haven't been quite as out and visible as the leaders. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of queer labor history where we've been leading. Um, yeah, yeah, and, you know, our community faces huge disparities, whether it's in wage gaps, um, access to respectful, affordable health care, um, housing, you know, all so many different disparities. And a union contract is like the great equalizer, right? Like equal pay for equal work. Um, so yeah, so we're we're you know low hanging fruit <laughs> for a bad pun um, for union organizing. And so Starbucks workers have run with this in a way that is just so exciting and inspiring. Um, you know, this is the type of giant progress company that has a reputation as progressive, which they're very much exposing that at the end of the day, corporations only care about profit. Um, and they only do like progressive things when they think it's in their interest for good PR. Um, so this weekend, Starbucks workers uh, kicked off in Seattle at the um, headquarters roastery for Starbucks, um, a strike wave across the country. So it's over 150 stores that are participating, which is over 3,000 uh, union members. And, you know, at Pride at Work, we're mobilizing. And I know a lot of the labor movement is mobilizing to make sure we support folks showing up on those picket lines. Um, a lot of folks are also doing um, marches in Pride. Um, you know, this is the biggest weekend, I think, for Pride um, in the country. So, yeah, it's just it's very exciting to see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there's definitely that overlap between uh, LGBT rights and workers rights. And, and I think that's so cool what is happening with Starbucks and seeing this organizing drive. And uh, something you had mentioned to me uh, 
before this conversation is about the Seattle Pride Guide. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I thought that was an interesting story. Yeah, so the Seattle Starbucks workers um, who have unionized um, created this like beautiful, amazing ad. Um, if you just, you know, Google, you know, Starbucks Workers United Seattle, I think you can find it pretty easily. Um, just saying, asking Starbucks to come to the bargaining table to stop silencing queer and trans workers because, you know, Starbucks for years has held itself up as being such a queer friendly company, supposedly. And it's been standard practice for, I mean, years. I worked there over a decade ago when it was standard practice to decorate stores for Pride then. But now this year, they're making workers take down Pride flags and stuff, um, which is just like really, really sad because it's actually the baristas who create that sense of culture um, and make it have that community feel. And that's why customers go there, right? Um, there's the liberal trope of, you know, the latte drinking liberal for a reason. Um, but we're showing, you know, in Starbucks actions that it's not true. And so these workers, um, met the deadline and, uh, I think it was over 23 organizations, um, including pride at work and some international and local unions and, you know, the state federation of labor there. Um, all co-signed and sponsored to put this ad in the Seattle Pride Guide calling for Starbucks to bargain in good faith, to stop silencing their queer and trans workers um, and do right by them. And I, well, and, and I, I can just say that uh, they're doing that here in Alabama, which I mean, maybe Alabama is kind of the least surprising state that they would do this to workers at Starbucks. But we uh, we went to last week the Iron Workers uh, Southeastern Apprenticeship Competition, uh, where we saw uh, you know apprentices from across the South kind of compete, and uh, um, it was it was a, it was a lot of fun. And on the way back, we passed by the Scottsboro, Alabama Starbucks location, where workers uh, won their union election uh, probably almost a year ago now, and and so we've got pretty strong ties to some of the people on that organizing committee. So since it was on the way back, we figured we'd stop by, get a coffee and see how they were doing. And, and they told us exactly the same thing that, that you're telling us here, that, uh, that, you know, they had created some pride decorations um, and their management told them to take it down. Uh, so which and, and somehow Starbucks is is out in the press saying that this isn't true, even though, you know, <laughs> workers at, at now hundreds of stores are saying that this this is true. But Starbucks is somehow denying it still. Right. They literally the workers are taking videos and putting them on the Internet <laughs> of their managers saying making them take down the decorations like so probably just the AI, evidence is really. there. That's, prob that's probably yeah. what it is. It's and, AI. <laughs> yeah. And with this ad in Seattle, the Seattle Pride Guide opted not to um, publish it. Mm. Um, Starbucks is one wow. of the biggest sponsors of Seattle Pride. Wow. I mean, I think that you can connect the dots pretty well there, right? right? That like they don't want to piss off their corporate sponsor. So they decided not to publish an ad that was by queer and trans workers. That's horrifying. What is Pride even about? <laughs> right. Yeah. That that kind of goes to like the the corporate like the corporatization of Pride. And we've seen that with Juneteenth as well, just just recently where these corporations are jumping on it as an opportunity to, you know, wash their image or to make a profit, to, you know, tap into these markets of diverse uh, folks while 
at the same time, totally like slapping a slap in the face in terms of the values of what it's really all about. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I had to ask you about that one because I, I just found that interesting, you know, the, the corporate connection of them being a sponsor, um, and, you know, pride being used to launder their reputation, um, of this viciously union busting company, uh, that disproportionately has LGBT workers. It's, uh, yeah, the hypocrisy is overwhelming there. Yeah, we see it in all kinds of different large corporations who love to throw money at pride across the country. Um, meanwhile, they are actively discriminating against their own LGBTQ workers. Yeah, Walmart is another one where for years now they've been sponsoring prides while at the same time being sued by their own workers um, over LGBTQ discrimination. So it's it's disingenuous. Um, you know, corporations are not actually for uh, queer and trans workers liberation at all. Right. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so on the topic of like workplace discrimination, um, the Equality Act was just reintroduced in the Senate. And could you talk to us a little bit about what that would do and, you know, why is that relevant for working people? Absolutely. Yeah. So the Equality Act was just reintroduced, as you said, um, this last week in the Senate. Um, and what it would do is codify into federal law um, non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ workers in a bunch of different areas, including employment. And I'll circle back to that one um, in a second because that's really important and relevant to our conversation. Um, but also, you know, things like education, public accommodation. So, like, can you take the city bus sort of stuff? Um yeah, and um, credit, um, all kinds of different areas of life are covered. It's essentially updating um, civil rights legislation to make sure that it covers sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and, you know, in 2020, the Supreme Court um, did make a ruling um, that it is sex discrimination um, to discriminate against LGBTQ people um, in employment but obviously, you know, it's been almost exactly a year since we saw the fall of Roe versus Wade. So we cannot trust this Supreme Court who we're learning about all kinds of corruption right now right. going on there um, to protect just like our well, basic now, hold right. Hold on, Brittany. You're say are you telling me that, that they can't have friends at <laughs> <that> your position? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I do not have friends spending that kind of money on me. Oh, okay. Well, maybe they're, just, friends, friends. Jacob, maybe they're just better friends than your friends. Jacob, you haven't taken me out on a private plane yet. I'm just, well, I'm just letting you know. You haven't well, done that yet. We're so not as close. Be... We're not as close as as Thomas and Harlan Crow. I mean, Obviously. I have friends that I do that with, but it just happens to not be you. So. Okay. Well, yeah. I'll hit up Harlan. <laughs> we'll see if Harlan is interested. <laughs> But uh, anyway, yeah, your your point, though, the Supreme Court is not a friend to working people at all. We cannot rely on courts. Uh, and so, you know, getting these protections in law would be huge, especially in a place like Alabama, where, frankly, you know, it seems like an uphill battle to even consider the possibility that these protections could be enacted by like our state legislature. Right. It, it, I think and, and that's where it's, you know, particularly relevant to folks in the South. Um, we're, we need federal we need federal help, as, as we often do. Uh, we need federal help to ensure people's rights are respected. 
Yeah, and especially at this time in 2023, there were over 525 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced mm. in 41 different states. Mm. Wow. And so far, I think I'm a little behind on my count here, but there are at least 75 that have been signed into law. Um, which is really scary. So we're actually moving backwards in terms of LGBTQ rights in the United States right now. And to be clear, I think it's a backlash to the progress that we have made, but it is deeply impacting people. Um, I mean, people are actively losing the health care that is life-saving for them. Um, there are studies that have shown that for transgender and non-binary youth, just having access to gender affirming healthcare reduces suicide risk by 73%. Mm. Right. I mean, that is just huge. Um, you know, like one fifth of gay, lesbian, or bisexual high school students attempted suicide in the last year. Think about that for a second. One fifth in just in the last year. Like, that is the impact that these bills are having. It is literally killing people. So it is very serious. And these are our coworkers. These are our neighbors, even if we don't know it. These are our coworkers' kids. And so not only do we need these protections at the state and federal level, but a union contract offers unique protections. It is the gold standard because it doesn't matter what the law is, you can bargain and you can win for protections. And then you also, if you're organized, have the solidarity of your coworkers right there immediately. You know, we do want federal protections, but going through the EEOC to file a discrimination complaint is a multi-year process. You have to hire a lawyer, all right. of these things. It is not pleasant. If, yeah. And, but if you're a union member, oh my gosh, you have immediate access to a steward or rep, you have contract language that protects you, that can be remedied right then and there. Um, and your union dues have already paid for it. <laughs> um, it's just, it's amazing. I, you know, I've worked um, in places where I've been in the closet. I've worked in places where I've been out and it's been frowned upon. Um, and I've worked in union shops where I've been out and it is just a world of a difference, even just every day, knowing that that contract language is there and that my coworkers have my back. I mean, it's a game changer. Right, right. And I, and it kind of is reminiscent of the conversation we were having earlier with those brothers from the Machinist Union about due process and how it does provide freedom. I mean, there is a sense of freedom when you can go to work and be yourself and know that as long as you're doing your job, Right. You you have protections against the arbitrary whims of some manager, uh, you know, who may or may not be a bigot, uh, you know, and that's something that's just that's so important for working people to have to have protections on the job. Uh, and I agree with you that, you know, as much as we need the legislation and we're going to all fight for this legislation, we can we can make progress without we don't have to wait on Washington. We can make progress in every shop with every union contract. And so I wanted to end there. If you could tell us kind of do you have some like a, a parting message maybe to, to union activists and particularly union leaders who maybe don't fully understand these issues or, or don't fully understand why this is relevant to them and their membership? What would you say to those folks? Yeah, absolutely. 
So if you have more than 10 workers in your shop, statistically, you have somebody who's part of the LGBTQ community, whether you know it or not. Um, and we know that the boss's favorite tactic is always to divide us and distract us any way they can so that we're busy fighting with each other instead of fighting and using our collective power to win better wages and protections for everybody. So, um, yeah, so it's, yeah, just, it's, it's just a boss tactic. And so even if you don't agree with it, you don't understand LGBTQ people, um, it's in your own interest. Um, and it strengthens your collective bargaining power um, to stand in solidarity and, you know, stick to those principles of the labor movement that every single worker, without exception, deserves respect and safety and affordable health care. Um, you know, like you said earlier, an injury to one is an injury to all. And so we're here as a resource. We you know, you don't have to know how to say the right thing. We're not going to judge you for that. We're just thrilled that you are calling and reaching out to us. Um, you can always find us at prideatwork.org. We have phenomenal staff. As leaders, we take a lot of these calls too. And so, um, yeah, we're here as a resource because we want to fight for the entire labor movement and the entire working class. Awesome. Awesome. And and remind us again, where can folks find you all to get plugged in? Yeah. So prideatwork.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter for the moment. We may not stay there forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Understood. Understood. Well, uh, Brittany, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing on behalf of the movement. And, uh, yeah, I really, really encourage folks to follow Pride at Work and, and follow what they're doing and use this resource that we have available for our unions. Uh, Y'all are doing great work, so keep it up. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, brothers. It was a pleasure. Yep. Enjoyed it. Uh, so, Adam, lest you think that I created that um, interjection about uh, not allowing Supreme Courts to have friends on my own, uh, I did not. I was reminded of a tweet from a literal person who actually unironically believes that. Oh, wow. That was like, so someone actually. Yes. Yeah, so here's here's the quote. Here's a quote from from Yaffe. Oh, Lord. Not. OK. <laughs> According to the left, apparently SCOTUS justices aren't allowed to have rich friends <laughs> or sell their houses. Or write opinion pieces defending themselves. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Boo-hoo. Yeah. What a struggle. What a tough, tough life. Yeah. You get yeah, private tough. flights and across you know the world, and you get to stay in these luxurious places, and wined and dined, and yeah. then what? People are going to judge you yeah. for that? And actually, you know what? Unironically, unironically... Yeah, I think that we should have conversations about seeing whether or not they should even have rich friends. That even if I think I think that it's worth a conversation to say, you know what? If say you had a rich friend before you became a Supreme Court justice, which is important to understand, none of these people were connected before they became judges, right? Okay, so I mean, you know, the idea that he's well, I mean, they were connected to like the Federalist Society, and right, right, they were before tapped they into they these networks, judges. right? Yeah, yeah, that's it's not like they were, you know, it's not like Thomas. Grew, grew up across the street from Harlan Crow. Right. And, you know, the idea that, that Yaffe would, I mean, you know, it's almost embarrassing 
Like, I would be embarrassed to pretend to be that stupid because he knows that that's a ridiculous thing. But honestly, honestly, even if Harlan Crow had grown up across the street from Justice Thomas, I think there should be a conversation about, uh, yeah, you should have to cut off some amount of your social life if that's the freaks. If you hung around people like that, then, yeah, maybe you shouldn't. You should be isolated from people like well, that so he, they don't influence. Yeah, them. and I'll give you a, a great example of that. How many people out here have had to cut friends out of their life so that they could be responsible, right? Maybe they had friends who drank too much or party too much, and you had to cut those people out of your life because they were a bad influence. Uh, we all have to make those decisions, right? And so, you know what? It is kind of relevant who their friends are. Uh, and if you have people on the highest court of the land and all the people they associate with are billionaires and they're, you know, flunkies, uh, that's revealing. I'm sorry, but that's, that's revealing. Like, yeah, but I mean, even, even this conversation that we're having now is just totally removed from the actual situation, which the actual situation is that, is that yes, in fact, um, you know, uh, these people were connected with these justices because of the power that they have. Right. And not because they grew up across the there's, street. There's, it's, it's just, just so silly. It's corruption. Yeah. It is corruption. If this were happening in another country that was on the bad guys list, mm. it would be proof positive. And right. NPR and BBC would talk about, see, we, right. you know, look at this foreign corruption. Yeah. Uh, what a questionable government this is. And so, yeah, it, it's, it is corruption. Uh, it is a total joke that folks like that would defend it. it yeah. Hey, looks like we got a caller. Let's bring him on. All right, Lord help us. If here this, we go, let's this, this see. <laughs> All right. Oh. All right, caller from seven one four area code. I believe you were on the air. Could you talk to us? Uh, can you guys hear me? I can. Awesome. So glad this worked. Uh. Buenos dias. My name is Jose Francisco Negrete, teamster out of Local 952, out here in the most happiest place on earth, Anaheim, California. I'm not talking about Disneyland, but Disneyland happens to be in my beautiful city. Great. Thanks for calling in, Jose. I appreciate it. Um, and and it's and yeah, and I I was really interested in hearing from from teamsters about. Uh, you know about what what's been going on. So what wh how are how are you feeling and how are your coworkers feeling about these negotiations? Uh, well, in the beginning we started negotiations around uh, I believe late January, early February, and we didn't get that much updates because they were just negotiating the supplemental, the regional part of our uh, contract. So we weren't getting that much updates. Now moving forward. We started national, you know, you know, Sean O'Brien had, he held two, uh, member update calls, one this past Wednesday and the other one two weeks prior to that, where he went over all the national agreements, which were basically all the non-economic, uh, parts to the, to our contract. Some of them were good. And just yesterday, the, someone leaked out the UPS economic proposal. Hmm. And I was telling the members how disrespectful it was. And, uh, if you read the, their economic, uh, proposal or counter proposal, whatever you want to call it, you could tell 
they don't, I guess they must have amnesia or something because they forgot about what we went through in Yeah, that that's a real shame. Yeah, that's a real shame that they agreed to that in ground rules. Um, but uh, and, and theoretically, I mean, this this leak of the UPS proposal is uh, is a violation of that. But, you know, I mean, it, it is, I'm not worried about that. But but yeah, the you can find it if you're interested, folks who are listening, you can go to on Twitter and uh, search for at Upsurge pod and they have uh, they've got, you know, pictures of the agreement and 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 just to lay out some of this stuff, you know, uh, UPS wants to have a seventeen dollar an hour starting pay for part timers, which is only what is it now fifteen fifty? Yeah, dollar yeah. fifty. I, I mean, it's just it's crazy. They also want to be able to do a reverse cost of living increase in the case of an economic downturn. Yeah, I mean that 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 boggles the mind. Yeah. They want to keep uh, market rate adjustments, which are non-contractual pay raises, they, pay raises they use to bait workers. Only problem is they can take them away whenever they want. Thousands say wage cuts last year up to $6 an hour. No new full-time jobs, uh, which was a major demand of the Teamsters. Part-time workers can go over a decade without the ability to get full-time jobs, uh, which you know very well. Uh, package car drivers' top rates will be cut. Get this. From $42 an hour to $32 an hour. Mm. They're actually coming after, they're wanting concessions in record-breaking profits. I mean, this is just, I mean, uh, insulting is the right word. Uh, Inside workers, they want to cut the top rate from $36 an hour to $24 an hour. No health and welfare and pension rate increases. They want to cut part-timer health insurance contributions. And some part-timers would end up with no health care at all. UPS appears to be agreeing to abolish the two-tier driver system, but is demanding more flexibility in new six-day and soon-to-be-defined seven-day operations. In other words, another concession. I mean, just I mean, really kind of astounding that they would that they would even put this on the table. Well, if you read the whole thing, like, cause I, I have the, I have the, <laughs> the documents too. Uh, there's one part of it where it says eliminations of MOBs. MOBs is the maintenance of benefits. 
Because in 2013, which is probably the, the most business unionist contract we had, very reactionary. We we were we said we were in the UPS uh, company healthcare plan before 2013. Hmm. 2013 comes around, UPS goes, no, we don't we don't want to run it, we don't want to fund it, we want out of it. Hence, during negotiations, it was agreed that you that UPS will fund it, but that's where they will stop. They will stop at the funding and anything else. They wash their hands on it. That's why Team Care was created. For most of the country out here in the West and local 177 in New Jersey, we did like what they, what they call the carve out our own healthcare insurance. So UPS wants to eliminate funding all that. Hmm. They just want they don't they don't want nothing to do with it. Right. So I mean this this economic pro- counter proposal proposal whatever you want to call it is is just a complete disrespect, a complete lack of doing the uh doing the morally right thing to do mm-hmm. because we did work through a pandemic we did when we worked i remember seeing individuals outside agencies come into our hub dressed like astronauts and disinfect like work areas because mm-hmm. you know somebody caught covid so they had to disinfect and just people were scared it was working through uncertainty and fear during that time especially in 2020 especially during you know, uh, late spring going into the summer where we really didn't know information, didn't really know anything because we had a president at the time that was wanted to be the cheerleader of the United States rather than being an adult and tell us, hey, this is the reality of this disease, you know, this uh, this virus, excuse me. And this is, well, you know, we just had a person that was just, I don't know, whatever, whatever he was, you know, so... I remember working through that time and just seeing the faces of people just like scared. And I was scared too. I, was, I wore double mask at that, at that time. And I was just like, you know, cause I don't, my mom, my mother is in her seventies. So I don't want to get my mom sick. I have a son at that time. He was, uh, 12. You know, I don't want him to get him sick. So, you know, I, I would come home. My mom would have a, a disinfected, uh, spray. And she would spray me down, spray all my clothes, so uh, just in case. And then I would put my clothes in the bag and leave them outside, uh, outside of my apartment, because I don't want, you know, I don't want to get sick. I don't want no my mom, my mother getting sick. I don't want my my son getting sick. Right. You know, and some of us unfortunately got sick, and they're still feeling the effects. And some of us passed away, which I guess UPS must have forgot that some of us passed away while, you know, while delivering, doing our job. But they did yeah. put, they did up, they did put, they did put posters in my hub and other hubs as well, calling us heroes. Oh. Yet they didn't want to pay us. Well, no. They didn't want to pay us hazard pay. Yeah, well, that's not enough for you. <laughs> I guess, I guess, I, I guess we're asking. I guess you know the 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 poster had to be suffice for us, you know. We, yeah. And we had to do good with that poster. We had to look in that poster every day and and remind ourselves that we were heroes. Right. Yeah, I mean, it it really is astounding. And, and, you know, the CEO of UPS makes more than a UPS driver makes in a year. The CEO of UPS makes that in a day. You know, I mean, it's just so uh, the idea. Yeah, I couldn't believe when I was reading those numbers um, from that economic proposal that that they would do that. I mean, in, you know, after all of the sacrifice that you just laid out from the pandemic and then on top of that. (laughs) 
that y'all sacrificed so much and they made more money than ever in the history of the of the company. You know, the idea that you would have both of those things. But Jake and Adam, we were working. Okay, so Monday and Friday, basically a part timer wasn't a part timer no no more. We're working Mm -hmm. almost 12 hours a day. Some of our hubs that are not 24 hour hubs, like my hub, so we only have a preload, which works like from three in the morning to nine in the morning before the drivers get out. And then we would have a twilight, you know, that goes from six to 11, or some places have a preload in the night, whatever. Those hubs were working 24 hours, almost 24 hours a day. I remember working 12 hours a day and then eight on Saturday and then six on Sunday. And we did that for almost two months because why? We, every, every, the country was in lockdown. Everybody was ordering things online. You know, the e-commerce, uh, economy just blew up and we had packages stacked up everywhere underneath every belt stacked up outside. It was was just, we just had packages. I've never seen so much. We always talk in UPS land. We always talk about, uh, a peak peak being the heaviest season and there's packages everywhere because you know people are ordering for for their loved ones and during christmas whatnot <laughs> comes uh late eight late spring into the summer 2020 basically we just we were just in peak overload it was like peak gone, gone on steroids we had so much so much work that we could we couldn't even handle the work right you know it was just, just wait we were we were sacrificing everything we got and we were just, we were called to come in like at, for example, I, I would, I would come in at 11 in the morning cause I would do the setup or 1130 and I wouldn't leave till like 12, like right before my 12th hour. So I'm like, you know, I don't want to take a sex lunch. I just want to go home and rest, you know, but we, that's, that was our job. We, we, we had to do our job during that time. And UPS doesn't re, doesn't remember that. They, they just, it's just complete. It's just a complete disrespect to the, to all the UPS workforce, all the drivers out there that sacrificed for their families that that probably got sick because they were doing their job during that time. It's a complete disrespect to all of us. Yeah, I I totally agree. And um, have y'all started practice pickets yet? Uh, no. What we do at my hub, and mm-hmm. there's some other hubs as well. We wear red on Fridays as a form of solidarity. Now, I have people coming up to me trying to clarify, is this a communist thing or is this a magma thing or is this a Jimmy Hoffa? Because during the conventions, Hoffa's Hoffa's, uh, crew or whatever camp would wear red, a red Uh vest. I'm like, no, solid. Come on, we wear red as as, because in the labor movement, red means solidarity. So we're showing solidarity between all of us. Because every contract is about one thing and one thing only, which is respect. Right. So we just we we we've earned our respect. We deserve our respect and we're going to get our respect. So that's why I tell the I tell the members that. So we so as as I know, you guys have read the Jane McAvaney is a structure test. I mean, it's not a, I'm not in the 90s yet, but, you know, it's it's in the it's in the 60s. So I just need more work to be done, <laughs> you know, when it comes to that structure test. But I hope my local does something, some uh, something. uh some uh, practice picketing. I already told the members we might do this. So now is the ball is their court, you know. Right. Uh, if they, if sometimes as members we want to do things, but when you're when you're not well liked by your local, you know, and you know, mm. 
it's it's they kind of it's very discouraging like to put yourself out there because you're like why should i put myself out there you guys do not like me you guys don't help me you guys don't you guys view me as some sort of cancer mm. so why should i help you you know but at the end of the day you still need to do what's right and what's right is getting these in getting our members engaged telling our members that we might have a practice ticket line ticket so if you start at 6:45 or 6:30 i guess this week is the latest start time then you come in you know at 6 and you will practice ticket you know or it it, it could be the conversation is after reading all that uh UPS economic proposal you might you have to start saving i've saved money and i've been telling members to save money but now I'm really telling members to, you know, you really need to save money because there might be a chance that we might hit these streets. I didn't think we were. Mm. But after reading that, yeah, it, it just seems like, and according to Carol Tremaine, when she got on CNBC, she said they weren't far apart. Now, <laughs> you read that economic proposal. No, you're com- we're com- we're not even on the same we're not on the on the same uh, uh, universe. We're right. we're in two different multiverses. You know, <laughs> using uh, MCU canon talk. You know, we're in, we're we're in Earth six six six, and they're in Earth two fifteen or whatever it may be. You know, right. we're not in the same we're not in the same universe. Yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm telling the members I'm telling the members like yeah you really now to start saving money if you have it now you need to because. Yeah. I mean, we still got what thirty-seven days more to go. So, yep, like five weeks. July thirty-first. Uh, Thomas Lupton, Lupton in the chat uh, is another Teamster. He said that we were told that Teamsters uh, pay to maintain our insurance plus five hundred dollars a week strike pay on day one of a potential strike. So, um, definitely important to keep saving, but that that will be helpful. Well, yeah, I think. he might be in Team Care, and Team Care they have a strike clause. Out mm-hmm. here in the West, we don't. Out here yeah. in the West, we have we we have one punch a week, because, like I, I said earlier, with that MOB, UPS would just give you the money, but they didn't want to administrate it. So we had a you know we used in the company plan everybody used to have a one month punch rule. Mm-hmm. We'll just have to punch once a month and keep our insurance for the for the for that month. Well, for the following month, and that was it. Now, come 2013, the most concessionary contract of the mall. Here, you know, become team care, and we do our carve out over here called the Western Region uh, and Local 177 Healthcare Plan, and we went from one one punch a month to one punch a week. So theoretically, if we go into that second week, by the third week, we'll lost insurance. If we go into that third week of the strike, I believe we will lose our insurance. You know, so that's so that that that's what is uh, is. Is, is scary for us. I just hope our committee that that uh, oversee the uh, our healthcare plan will meet and then come up with some sort of uh, strike clause where it says, you know, in in lieu of a strike or in case of a strike, members will not lose their insurance for at least a month. Uh, mm. You know, but everything's so uncertain right now because right. everything is so fluid and. You know they're just focusing on the negotiation. So I hope our our uh, our representatives that sit on that committee, you know, go have an emergency meeting and then propose that, and we'll see what happens. But that's that I I I'm just hoping on that end. Yeah, uh, Jose, appreciate you taking the time to call.
Thank you. No, no, thank you guys. Thank you for having me. Yep. Yeah, appreciate you, brother. Uh, Adam, we got another person on the line. All right. Let's bring them in. How are you? Adam and Jacob, how are you? It's Infinite. Hey. Good morning. Infinite content. Good morning. Or good afternoon, good I guess, afternoon. at this point. Arrogance of the UPS uh, negotiators. You yeah. tell me, you know, like, our, 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 uh, our offer is that you all cut your raises when you all make a record. Ooh. Hmm. I, yeah. it, it's I, I mean, I'm like the fucking balls to um, even put that out there when they've been getting record raises. All of the corporate board needs to be fired for cause uh, for the amount of economic harm that's about to hit this company because uh, they did, they acted in a way that was not fiduciary uh, beneficial for the company. And they need, none of them need their golden parachutes or, uh, or uh, any of their uh, settlements or what have you. That, the team should really take the, see, when I talk about defenestration, the guy who wrote that should be defenestrated mm. out of a 10-story window. And once again, defenestration means throwing somebody out a window. Because, I mean, if you brought that to anybody else, it's like, okay, so for your next couple of years, we want you to take a pay cut while you're making work at profit. You lost your damn mind. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just. I was reading about this yesterday, and how they, their offer is, yes, we want you to go back to, we want you to work in much worse conditions, um, and us pay you no, us not pay you. Right. Oh my god, the, the, the hubris, the, the unmitigated. And then to say we're not far apart. Right. Yeah. Just, just go lie on on live television. Like I said, it, this ain't even Marvel in DC. This is like, uh, like the previous caller talked about different uh, multiverses. I don't even know. These are completely different uh, uh, realms of reality that they're mm-hmm. existing on. Because somebody is smoking something. Um, I've been smoking uh, industrial since crack to uh, write that contract and one and two. I think it was a good idea to bring it to the teamsters and think that they were going to. Uh, I'd be cool with it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in this moment. Like I said, I mean, this is just not the time to be asking for something so, uh, you know, so, so silly. Um, yeah, totally agree. It's not, it's not even draconian. It's a, it, mm. This is just, like I said, it, it'd be draconian to say, okay, we're not going to be able to give you raises for a couple years because we're doing bad. But we, it's like, we can all see the news. We can all look it up on um Google to see what your profits have been the past couple of years. UPS, um, Amazon, uh, FedEx, they've been making record profits these past couple of years uh, because a lot of people have been buying things online and haven't shipped. Right. So you can't say that you ain't got the money. Right. We know you have the money. You're just thinking, okay, we're going to flex. This is the wrong time to flex and the wrong move to make because I don't know. People are like, why will UPS just use the USPS to get their um, their packages done? Because the APWU might say, no, we're not going to go ahead and do this because we're not crossing a uh, picket line. And Thomas Lupton just said it in the chat, FAFO. And and they're they're really doing that. Um, they're going to find out in a disastrous way because I, I can easily see that this cost them 
hundreds of millions of dollars, which would be much cheaper than just agreeing to the uh, terms of um, over the uh, term of the contract. Uh, uh, what they what the uh, teamsters want. Yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, I saw that uh, a UPS strike would be something uh, like a billion a day or some something crazy. Uh, that sounds about right. That yeah. I read something along those lines where they handle such a significant portion of the uh, commerce in the U.S. where it's going to be felt um, all across the board. Almost as uh, this is going to be just as bad, if not worse, than um, the the immigrant workers uh, refusing to work in Florida. Yeah, absolutely. Infinite content. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. All right, solidarity, brothers. Yep, solidarity. Appreciate you. Um, we got a couple of text messages last week. If you want to, if you're listening to us as a podcast and you want to send us a question via text or through the voicemail line throughout the week you are welcome to do so the phone number is 844-899-TVLR that is 844-899-8857 this first one is from Jack from New Jersey Uh, last week after a year of canvassing phone banking and other organizing my DSA chapter celebrated a great victory as our right to counsel and development impact fee ordinances Uh, which provide legal services free at point of service to tenants funded by the development fees passed unanimously at the Jersey City Municipal Council. I mean, that is that is big. At the same time, our neighbors in Newark added a rent increase cap for non rent controlled units. Another I mean, another huge win. Uh, There's also a good deal of labor tension around development in New Jersey. Concerns in Jersey City include serious unsafe working conditions and outsourcing of labor to non-union shops in different parts of the state. Uh, So do you have any thoughts on what tenant organizers such as myself can do to build the coalition to deliver us the overfunded union public housing that I know we all deserve? And I think he meant underfunded there, but... Um, but but the question is, how do you build uh, labor tenant solidarity more or less? And, you know, Adam, as you have been in the, uh, you know, you've been both in, in like a community organizer type role and a labor organizer type role. And, and so wh- what are some of your initial thoughts there about how to build solidarity uh, between these two groups? Yeah, uh, well, I, the first thing I would say is that I don't have a ton of. Uh, background or, or experience or knowledge when it comes to tenant organizing. And so that's not a specialty, you know, that I have by any means. It's something I'm interested in and, and hope to learn more about. And so my first thought is from this comment, we probably should talk to some folks who are experts in this, right? Uh, and I think the same goes for uh, for Jack and for his comrades. Uh, there are people out there who are you know, smarter than us when it comes to this stuff and um, could certainly be helpful, I think, in like devising strategies or maybe finding contacts. Um, and so I always I always like to find out, OK, who knows what it is that that I'm interested in? Like who who are the experts who uh, has contacts that can help me? Um, and a couple other things I would say is I would say the unions ought to be surveying their members to see where they live. And do they live in, do they have mortgages or do they rent? Uh, 
Um, do they, you know, have multifamily households? Do they uh, multi generational households? Like, I think our unions should be figuring out more information about us as members and the way we live. And I think that would be extremely relevant to this situation. And so, you know, maybe the Labor Council there can can do a survey of its membership and start talking this up at, at the meetings of the various member unions uh, and get members to participate and let folks know, you know, where they live and what their conditions are, because uh, I think having that information would be extremely valuable. Um, and so if there's a possibility for you know, the tenant organizing community and the labor organizing community to collaborate on some sort of survey, uh, that would be even better, I think. Um, so those uh, that's a couple of things I'm thinking. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, organizing is, is largely about relationships and building relationships. And so, um, you know, I would I would encourage folks who are trying to build this coalition uh, to don't be afraid to have one-on-one -on -one conversations and small group meetings with folks and and reach out to the folks because you just you don't know until you know um, and so uh, don't be afraid to reach out to union folks union leaders uh, even if maybe you're not really you know super sure on, on how they're going to feel about this issue um, I think at least building connections and having conversations can bring you for you know further down that that road of having a good coalition uh, and just, you know, there are going to be distinct interests, right? And so the unions have to protect their members. And sometimes that can be in a sort of narrow sense, uh, which can push up against like bigger picture issues. Uh, so there's always that tension that can that can come into play. Uh, but there again, I think that's where, you know, having relationships of respect and, and trust uh, can really help break through some of those tensions. Uh, so those are a couple of thoughts, you know, find some experts um, and do your research. Research is very, very important. Um, you know, some folks skip that part <laughs> of the organizing and go straight into like one-on-one -on -one conversations or planning actions or, you know, building a committee of some kind, but you got to do your research as well. And so uh, getting information about housing as it exists in the city, getting information about who lives in the housing and what, you know, what are some patterns perhaps that you could point to. Um, and then, you know, uh, like I said, identifying those experts and, and working with folks to get to build your list of contacts um, and, and talk with these unions and figure out, you know, what are their priorities? Are they even thinking about this issue? If they're not thinking about this issue, why not? Um, because it, it affects their members, um, obviously, right? I mean, where where they live, uh, how much they have to pay to have housing, that's very relevant to the unions, even if it's maybe outside the scope of their collective bargaining agreement or, you know, their dealings with a particular employer. Uh, so there's common interest there. There's common ground to be found. And I think... Uh, it sounds to me like there's really exciting organizing happening up there in Jersey City. So um, keep that up and keep the momentum going. And don't, you know, don't just sit back like, OK, we won some. Yay, we won. Like, it's easy to lose momentum sometimes when you're winning uh, because it's, you know, everybody gets tired. Folks get tired. Folks want to go out on top. They feel like they just won something and, and now they can kind of sit back and 
Um, but wins can create more wins if you really channel the momentum. And so I would say start with the relationships y'all have already formed with these victories, the the development impact fee ordinance, the you know right to counsel ordinance, um, that's big. The rent increase cap, that's big. Figure out who was who was instrumental in that. Somebody was involved in in getting that through, and it's not just you know the folks on the city council, the the elected officials. They were being pushed by somebody, uh, right? So those are just some thoughts I have a, a, around that. Um, you know, again, it's not something uh, in my expertise, but uh, just some thoughts. And I, again, I really appreciate the comment and I appreciate all the, the organizing that they're doing up there um, and really wishing you all a lot of luck and growing this coalition. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the uh, I, I would definitely um, I, I would definitely echo what Adam said about, you know, just calling people and and just initiating conversations you know i think that that's uh that's a very powerful um uh you know that can be very helpful and, and keep track of that and keep track keep of track that of keep, it, notes. keep notes mm-hmm. and map out who knows who and and who you know and what union and and yeah keep keep track of that for sure yeah and and because you know the the connection that that worker that, that that you know labor unions have to tenant unions that worker organizers have to tenant organizers is really pretty intuitive, right? And and that connection is that workers have to live somewhere, and typically they live where they work, or a lot of times they live where they work. And if they were working in cities like New Jersey or New York, uh, then you know they are faced with uh, the ridiculous cost of housing, right? Um, so it would, it's, it would not seem like there would be a conflict there between, uh, the, the work that you're trying to do as a tenant organizer and the work that they're trying to do as union organizers. And I did, I don't know, uh, Jack from New Jersey, if you typically listen to us as a podcast, but I, uh, while Adam was talking, I found a few articles that may give you some, uh, some ideas, um, and I put them in the YouTube chat. So if you find us on, if you typically listen to us as a podcast, head on over to the live stream that was on uh, the 24th of June, and you can see in the YouTube chat uh, three articles that I linked to. One was in Labor Notes. Uh, the title is Housing is a Worker Issue, Why the Labor Movement Should Support the Beyond Recovery Campaign. Um, that's about, you know, attempts f- to, you know, secure affordable housing for union members. Uh, there was an article from May 26, 2023, pretty recently in The Nation. Unions are stepping up to find a solution to California's housing crisis. And this is a fascinating thing here. Um, and that is that uh, in these industry that the unite here is seeking an industry-wide agreement in um los angeles that would include a seven percent surcharge on restaurant meals and hotel stays to provide affordable los angeles housing to industry workers um and so that fund would uh go to um, the the union co-president Kurt Peterson told the author of the piece that that fund could total $150 million 
and that would be used as both seed money to subsidize the construction of new homes that would then be sold or rented to hospitality industry workers, and also to provide cash grants and emergency housing loans to workers in the industry who are unable to afford housing in the vicinity of their employment or at or are at immediate risk of homelessness. So that's uh, you know a really cool idea, and um, we just talked about actually. And then the, the other one that I um, linked to was in In These Times from 2018, how unions can solve the housing crisis. Um, and, and, you know, so those are, uh, you know, and, and, and one of the ways to think about how they can help you is to think about you, how you can help them. And, and that would be to push for, you know, new development and, uh, you know, but make it affordable and push for that to be, you know, to have like project labor agreements or, uh, you know, mandated that it be done by union contractors and things like this. And, and of course, you know, if you get the building, if you, you know, dangle new projects in front of the building trades unions, they're going to be much more likely to support. Um, and, uh, you know, beyond kind of some obvious stuff like that, you know, Adam talked about on shop talk, a while ago, how back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the Knights of Labor had a uh, cooperative community in Birmingham, Alabama, where they built union house, you know, the unions built houses for union members to live in at affordable rates. And so that is something that, that could be done today. Uh, you know, that, that unions could create funds and, and could build small, you know, communities that their members could live in. And um, and I think that that is happening in some places across the country, but I, I'm not I haven't been able to find um, off the top of my head uh, or, or uh, you know, while I'm doing the quick the quick Google search. Um, but it seems like I remember that that that's still happening in some places. And I'm wondering, could unions work with the community organizations to come up with community land trusts and you know could unions be a part of that process um they have resources they have members um i'm not again i'm not an expert on community land trusts but i'm really intrigued by them and i think there's potential there uh and so that that could be another angle to explore yeah absolutely uh, we got another text message. This one, uh, the person did not identify themselves, but they said, Hello, TVLR crew. I recently had the opportunity to hear an organizer from the UC Berkeley strike speak. While many view the strike as a victory, he underscored that the contract fell far short of their demands. He said the leadership was not as militant as the rank and file. To highlight this, he brought up one of their main slogans, One Day Longer. He said he appreciated the sentiment, but that it misses the mark because it paints the strike as nothing but a war of attrition when they should have been escalating. He gave several examples of ideas for escalation that I won't go into, but his comment made me think of the Brookwood strike. I remember the one day longer being a frequent slogan. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject. Does a one day longer mindset stifle escalatory tactics and rank and file militancy? If so, do you think it was one of the issues that ended the Brookwood strike? And um, and I think that you were right to call out the mindset as opposed to the slogan itself, because I think the slogan itself is 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 fine, um, you know, and especially the uh, Brookwood, uh, you know, the 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 one that they used in Brookwood could actually play really well into, 
you know, having an uh, an escalatory mindset and a, and a militant mindset because they would say not just one day longer, but they said one day longer, one day stronger. And so, you know, there is, you know, there's a way that you could interpret that to be that, you know, we're going to keep building during the strike. Um, but, you know, I think that you that you could tell uh, from the outside that that really wasn't done. And I'm, I couldn't tell you what the reason for that would be. I don't know if there wasn't enough uh, support from the members to do anything more militant or if they were if the union was too worried about the uh, potential financial penalties, uh, which would be real. Right. Uh, you know, doing something like that in Alabama. And so, uh, you know, but but, at, you know, absolutely the. The lack of escalatory tactics is is one of the issues for sure. I think, and I, I think that they would they would tell you that. And I think even the people who made the decisions to not escalate would say that that's that was one of the contributing factors because, um, you know, and they would just say that that pro- they would probably just say that that they couldn't escalate that it just wasn't an option really. Um, and I don't know that I would agree with that, but but I, I don't think that that they would disagree with that. And and so, uh, but but. It, 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 it is important, especially today, to not um, view a strike as simply not going into work. You do have to do a lot more, especially when you're um, especially when you are facing these international, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations. Right. If you, you striking at one workplace, you know. Uh, even you know a thousand employees, as we saw in Warrior Met, if they have a lot of cash reserves or other places elsewhere, then they're going to be able to wait you out. And so you have to be able to do some other stuff. You have to either expand the strike, or you have to figure out some way to hurt their profit. And in a lot of cases, um, just simply not going into work is not going to be enough to move the company. Yeah, all I'll add on that is. If if you're at a situation where you are locked into a war of attrition and it appears to be like that's how it's going and there is not really escalation or new tactics coming down the pike, it's just sort of who who blinks first, uh, I would say that's probably not going to be advantageous for the union because in almost mm-hmm. any circumstance, the company will be able to hold out longer simply because they have capital. Yeah. Um, they have access to capital. They have their own capital, um, and so you know they can eat. They can eat a loss for a while, um, and can probably hold on longer than any given union. Traditionally, I mean, there could be exceptions, of course. Maybe a small company and uh, you know, and a large union. Uh, mm-hmm. could, maybe you know, there's differences there, but certainly uh, with Warrior Matt Cole. Yeah, they had massive coal reserves. They had the price of coal skyrocket. They had, you know, access to, you know, all the capital of the world, <laughs> more or less, with BlackRock and and things of that nature. So, um, I get I get where you're going with this, though. Mm-hmm. I think if you're right, I mean, it, thinking about like World War One, where on the Western Front it was just kind of a war of attrition stalemate for years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very little would actually get accomplished. Very little territory would change hands and folks would climb up over the trench and get slaughtered in no man's land. And, you know, maybe a couple of inches here or there would change ter- change hands. And, and that's kind of how the fighting went for years. And um, in, a, in a war like that, 
typically the bosses are going to be better resourced and better able to withstand that kind of war of attrition. And so, um, yeah, I think if you find yourself in that situation, um, that's not good. Uh, it's, it's probably not, does not bode well for your, your ability to have success. And so maybe there are other tactics you can try. Maybe there's a different strategic approach, you know, you can take, um, to, like you said, address the company's ability to profit or uh, or your ability to engage your membership and build power there. Uh, maybe there's new actions you can try. You know, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think if you find yourself locked into a war of attrition and it's just, hey, we got to hold out one day longer than the company, um, see if there's anything else you can do. Uh, yeah. Because I think that, is going to be a hard fight to win. And even if you win, um, will you come out stronger on the other side? And that's something that's important as well, is when unions go on strike, ideally, you win the strike and you come back from the strike, not only victorious, but actually in a better position than you were previously, with more engaged membership, more loyalty among your membership, um, and, and you know maybe higher membership density but um you know some long drawn out war of attrition is probably not going to play well and so uh if it's that situation uh, i would encourage folks to think outside the box and see you know are there more allies you can bring to the fight are there more tactics you can bring to the fight uh whatever the situation may be because i i i I think I get what the the commenter is saying there, and I mm-hmm. I, I kind of I, I I agree with the that you should not just resign yourself to a war of attrition with capital because you know that's not the kind of fight we're well equipped to win. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Adam, let's get back to some IATSE news. Sure. Yeah, I did have a couple other IATSE updates to share with folks. Um, so. Bus and truck touring negotiations. Let's talk about that. Uh, employers have threatened to cancel an upcoming season and refuse to counter union proposals. So the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE, has been negotiating the bus and truck touring agreement with Big League Productions, Networks pr- Presentations, Crossroads Live North America, and Work Light Productions, LLC. Uh, Despite early progress and months of negotiations, the employers have repeatedly threatened to cancel the upcoming fall season if the union does not capitulate to unreasonable demands. Now, these employers refuse to counter the union's proposals, bringing negotiations to a screeching halt even though several weeks remain before the current contract is set to expire. The workers represented under this agreement regularly face grueling working conditions on the road. They provide top-tier entertainment across America. And their commitment to their craft should be reflected by the wages and conditions they deserve. Regrettably, workers' sacrifices and commitments are not recognized in this way. These negotiations must address the workers' core priorities in order for the members to ratify a new contract. The workers have made it very clear from the beginning. This contract must achieve better wages per diem and single occupancy lodging to ensure these devoted workers can rest and recover between stops. Rather than acknowledging the intensity of life on the road and valuing the workers who deliver extraordinary theatrical productions to audiences nationwide, these employers have repeatedly issued comments threatening the upcoming touring season. 
This stance illustrates a disconcerting focus on profit margins over a commitment to the art of theater. Ayatsu strongly condemns these thinly veiled threats and remains dedicated to protecting and promoting the rights of our workers and protecting the cultural institution that is touring theater. Despite these challenges, Ayatsu remains steadfastly committed to achieving a fair and equitable agreement before June 30, 2023. We will continue to urge these employers to consider our request at the negotiating table and work collaboratively towards an agreement that prioritizes the well-being of the dedicated workers they employ and the entertainment of enthusiastic audiences around the country. So, disappointing news to hear that with the bus and truck touring negotiations for IOTC. Um, again, the contract expires June 30th, so we'll see if a deal can be worked out before then. Uh, but as someone who... Uh, as a local stagehand, uh, obviously I work alongside road crews uh, pretty much every gig that I work, and uh, my hat goes off to them. It's not something that I would feel good about doing. Uh, you know, typically it's like a it, it's 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 a very huge commitment uh, to be out on the road and tour, and uh, those folks have a lot of time away from their family. But they work very bizarre schedules where they have limited rest, limited time, you know, to themselves, uh, limited time to take care of themselves. And so, you know, they certainly deserve a good contract. Uh, the lodging, uh, I really hope they can get that in as well. So uh, definitely sending our love and solidarity to the IATSE members fighting for a contract with these bus and truck touring companies. And while we're on the subject of IATSE, I uh, also wanted to mention an update regarding the writer strike. So the General Executive Board of IATSE unanimously approved $2 million to be distributed through industry-recognized charities to support IATSE members in need during the ongoing writer strike. These funds have been specifically earmarked for the Motion Picture and Television Fund, the MPTF, the Entertainment Community Fund, and the AFC formerly the Actors Fund of Canada. IATSE International President Matthew D. Loeb said, For those who are struggling, you are not alone. The 170,000 kin of our alliance are with you, and help is available. We trust these proven industry charities to deliver this much-needed support directly to IATSE members who need it most, and we will continue to explore all avenues to provide necessary assistance to our members as they weather the storm during the writer's strike. The move echoes a similar measure taken by IATSE in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic when IATSE committed $2.5 million to assist members displaced by the near-complete shutdown of live events in motion picture and television production in 2020. The funds earmarked by the union will be specifically for IATSE members in need. So, really glad to see some resources being devoted uh, because as the writer's strike drags on in its second month here, uh, of course, a lot of folks are losing work. Um, mm -hmm. It's not just the writers, but everyone else on the production, which includes the IATSE folks. That includes the actors, the directors. Uh, you know, a lot of workers are being impacted by this this situation where Hollywood does not want to negotiate a, a fair contract with their writers. Uh, and so, you know, it's unfortunate that we've got IATSE members and, and uh, SAG-AFTRA members and others who are out of work because of this, but we should never forget who's responsible, and that is the corporations here. The writers have made very reasonable uh, demands, 
and it's past time to pay them and to meet them uh, at the table and, and resolve a fair contract so that everybody can get back to work uh, in the entertainment industry. Yep, glad to see it. Um, so, Adam, you want to hit another couple, another story or two, or you want to go ahead and wrap it up? I didn't have anything else this week. Um, so, yeah, unless, unless okay. you did. Um, I've got a couple stories I'm going to save, I think, for next week, um, talking about the NLRB and the NCAA, uh, a little sports uh, discussion. But I think I'm going to save that for next week. And same with, uh, well, for pre-K, this is just a very quick hit that I'm I'm happy to share, um, it, and that's that the governor's office, Governor Kay Ivey, has been kind of going around the state and making a big deal out of uh, pre-K expansion. Mm. So Alabama's first-class pre-K program will expand in 30 counties this fall, and it's going to add 69 classrooms, which equates to a, more than 1,200 seats. That's good. That's great. I love to see it. Uh, Alabama's pre-K program is very well-renowned. It is very successful. Uh, we know that pre-K, access to a pre-K, uh, high-quality pre-K program is very beneficial for the young people. Uh, they tend to do better in school, having gotten that good head start. Uh, we also know it's a huge relief for families, right? Mm -hmm. That's a whole year of childcare you don't have to pay for. Uh, that's a whole year where you know that your child is somewhere safe and learning uh, rather than you scrambling for babysitters or daycare centers or, you know, church schools or wherever you can find, you know, find a place. Uh, so the state funded pre-K program, it has grown significantly from serving just over 5,000 children in 2013 to more than 26,500 last school year. Ivy has continually praised the program and called for its expansion, but Here's here's the rub on that. Here's where I get a little bit, you know, ticked off. The governor is talking about expansion and how we should expand pre-K. That Again, I agree. We should expand pre-K. But her goal is 70%. Not 100%. 70%. And currently, they serve 44% of eligible students. Now, this is according to the Alabama Daily News. Um... So the latest expansion will bring the total student count to around 27,800 across 1,550 classrooms. So, yeah, it brings it closer to Ivy's goal of 70% of eligible four-year-olds. But why is our goal not 100%? Right. And why are we only at 44% right now uh, when apparently, according to Alabama legislators, there was just a ton of money available? So much money that they, you know, are sending rebate checks to folks with mm -hmm. education trust fund dollars, mind you. Right. The same dollars that would ordinarily fund something like pre-K. Um, and so it's good news to see it growing. Uh, it's good news that the governor supports the program as opposed to like, you know, trying to totally axe it. Though I say that she, of course, did push out Barbara Cooper, who led the department for being too woke, quote-unquote woke, uh, over a textbook. So, you know, Governor Ivey touts her support of the pre-K program while at the same time being willing to sabotage the program uh, and has certainly not been a, a strong advocate for 
fully funding pre-K. 100% of four-year-olds in this state should have access to the first-class pre-K program. Every four-year-old. We know that not every family will take advantage of it, but every family should have the opportunity. And it's ridiculous to even brag that you're about halfway to your goal, which isn't even 100%. Right. That's an insult. That's an insult. And when there's been money available uh, and we know what an impact it has, it helps people. It helps working class families. It relieves a burden on working class families uh, while at the same time improving academic achievement. You want to get the test scores up? Let these kids go to pre-K. Absolutely helps. Absolutely helps. Talk to kindergarten teachers and first grade teachers if they can tell which ones had a good pre-K program and which ones didn't. Right. I'll tell you all about it. So, you know, Governor Ivey, really uh, don't feel you're bragging here. I'm not for it. Uh, You can come back to me and brag when you are setting a goal of 100% and then you're coming at me and telling me how you're going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. When you do that, brag all, brag all you want. But I'm sorry, the fact that less than half of Alabama's four-year-olds have access to the pre-K program is an embarrassment. Yep. With that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, Adam will bring you Shop Talk next Thursday. That's right. And and while I did want to mention just for the audience that, um, you know, Shop Talk has been kind of all over the place the last couple of weeks. I've been out of town. Um, I was out of town for my anniversary on a Thursday. And then this past week, you know, Jacob and I were out of town for the Ironworkers competition. And so um, the schedule has been a little hit and miss. And I can already tell you that this week, I'm not exactly sure uh, when it's going to air. Um, I, I can't promise you that it's going to air at 9.30 Thursday morning, or at least not live uh, Thursday morning at 9.30, uh, because my schedule is very much in the, up in the air. Um, and so I appreciate the patience with folks, and I appreciate that um, folks are still tuning in. Uh, Shop Talk, one thing we've noticed about Shop Talk is that folks tend to not listen live. Uh, a lot of folks listen live to us on Saturdays, but the Thursday show on Shop Talk is more of a people check it out when they can later on. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, the views are and listens are, are typically like a day or two after. Um, and so all that to say, we're having conversations here at the Valley Labor Report about uh, Shop Talk and its future and uh, its schedule. Um, if you value shop talk and like you think we should continue doing it definitely let us know uh if you are not a big fan and you you really you know could take it or leave it let us know that too uh if you have any preferences on timing and schedule let us know that uh because moving forward i'm not sure if we can say definitively what day and time it's going to be for the rest of the summer or you know in general um so the plan is hopefully to to air you know stick with our thursday 9 30 a.m slot uh as long as we can but you know it's it's going to be difficult and so any feedback that y'all have as an audience is really really appreciated on that uh because 
you know, we don't do it just to hear ourselves talk. We do it to try to provide some value for folks and uh, some enjoyment for folks. Uh, so, yeah, if you're getting something out of it, uh, just let me know and, and give me your, your opinions about that. Um, so this week is going to be a really good episode. It's going to be a really good episode. I talked with Ellen David Friedman. Uh, she is a longtime organizer, retired uh, up in Vermont with the NEA. She worked with various other unions. She's on the board of Labor Notes. And she is the one who does the training session, what to do when your union breaks your heart. Uh, and so we had a good conversation about that, that training uh, that I will be bringing you this week. So just stay tuned. Uh, stay tuned. If you're not already like following us, uh, definitely do that just so you can uh, know when we're airing. Uh, but just wanted to let folks know that, you know, things have been a little bit up in the air with Shop Talk the last couple of weeks. So my apologies. Uh, your feedback is welcome. Um, and again, as always, I really appreciate those of you who do tune in and, and find something valuable there. Yep. And I'm going to be on the Dale Jackson show Wednesday morning at 630, uh, primarily to talk about the Aerojet Rocketdyne union election here in Huntsville. And I'm planning to go live a little bit earlier than that, like at 6 a.m. or something to talk about a couple of the stories that uh, we didn't get to. So um, if uh, so, if everything goes according to plan, you should be able to catch me bright and early Wednesday morning before I go into work. So um Right on. And uh, I'm sure I'll be on America's Workforce Radio here again soon. Um, so we'll, we'll see. I'll definitely keep you all posted on that. Um, and I don't have any other updates yeah. beyond just, again, follow the sign up for the email list. If you're not already, uh, check out our website, tvlr.fm. And don't forget to tell people about the show, especially those of you uh, who are in unions. Make sure you talk to your union about the show. We really appreciate it. Yep. See you next week. <laughs>